And we'll open our Bibles to Matthew 16 in here. Matthew 16. If you are using a house Bible, that should be uh, around page 822. Of course, we're studying together through the Gospel of Matthew. Peter said to Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was the greatest declaration of faith, the greatest confession of faith uh, that that has ever come out of the disciples' mouth up to this point. It's a real pinnacle, a highlight of this book. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one, the one that the Old Testament predicted who would come and bring deliverance and glory to the people of God. And many of the people were excited about that. They were waiting for the coming of the Messiah, at least on a certain level. They were, they were excited about it. Um, they were anxious to have a Messiah who would come and lead them to glory, who would give them manna from heaven and heal their sick and deliver them from their Roman oppressors. And they were anxious to have that sort of Messiah, but the people did not understand. In fact, even Peter, we saw last week, even Peter and the disciples did not comprehend from the Scriptures or from the Lord's teaching that Christ's path to glory must go through suffering. They saw the glory. They were looking forward to the glory, but they couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that the Messiah should suffer. But that is exactly what Jesus tells them. It it is necessary for Messiah to suffer. For one thing, because that is the will of God the Father. Also because that is what was predicted through the Old Testament. If they had known their scriptures better, they would have, could have, and should have known that the Messiah must suffer and then enter into His glory. This was necessary because it was the only way, it is the only way, for God to be both just and to justify sinners. The Messiah must suffer in the place of His people so that He may stand as their head and representative punished under the righteousness of God so that God's anger and His wrath and His righteous indignation is all spent on His people and there is nothing left for them but favor. And that's what That's why Christ had to suffer. So he tells his disciples, this is predicted in the Old Testament. This is necessary. It's the Father's will. This is why I've come, not only to bring glory, but to bring glory through suffering, to be exalted, but to be exalted by way of being lifted up on a cross. And ironically, it is his death for which we most earnestly bless Him and exalt Him today. We sing about His work on the cross, 
because that's where our boasting is. That's the only place our boasting is. Amen? Nothing else but in the death of the righteous one on the behalf of those who were and are, apart from grace, very unrighteous. So, it was that from this point on in Jesus' ministry, as Matthew records it and puts it all together, that Jesus begins to turn to really being upfront with his disciples about the suffering that's coming. He begins from this point on to teach them about that suffering more clearly, more openly, to show them that this is what the Messiah must do, even though from here on out they still don't always get it, right? Almost to the very end. Uh, in fact, even after the end, after he suffers and he dies. Remember when he's uh, the guys on the road to Emmaus? And they were like, we would have thought that he was the Messiah, but he was crucified and killed. And Jesus begins from the Old Testament, Moses and the prophets to show them, this is what the Scriptures said, the Messiah should first suffer and then enter into his glory. And he opened their eyes in every way. Their eyes were open to him. So these guys still don't get it, um, even throughout the course. But from this point on, Jesus begins to be very plain about where he is going and what is ahead for him. But then he turns the conversation, and we just barely got to this point last week, but this is where I want to really begin to emphasize, uh, to place the emphasis for today. He turns the conversation from his own suffering to the suffering that should be expected for all of those who are followers of His. And here it is in verse 24. Matthew 16, verse 24, He tells His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. If you would be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you must die. That's what Jesus was saying, right? You follow me, it's going to be death ahead. It's going to be a cross. It's going to be suffering. What does that mean? Well, on, one, on the one hand, I think it means that Christians are people who are They believe in Christ. They have such trust in Him. They're so committed to Him that they're willing to be identified with Him even if that means suffering or, or even, possibly, even possibly death. They are so committed to Him, they are willing to be identified with Him no matter what. They believe in their heart of hearts that He is worth it. Now... <laughs> They may not be able to imagine going through a lot of suffering and how will I ever stay faithful? And most of us would, would struggle to imagine ourselves being very faithful in, in, a, in a lot of um, suffering, pain, imprisonment, torture, death. Maybe we wonder if we would, we would stand firm, but we know in our hearts that He's worth it. We are committed to Him. That's the mark of a Christian. And of course, some of the disciples were literally called to, to die for the name of Jesus. In fact, some of them literally were crucified 
almost just like our Lord was. At least this is what tradition tells us that some of the disciples did. Were literally crucified just exactly like their Savior. All of them, many of them, were um, were pursued uh, to death uh, for the sake of their Master. Um, is it God's will for every single Christian to pay the ultimate price? No. But dying with Christ means that we are committed to Him no matter what. It means that we care more about God's reputation than we do about our own. It means that we're ready to spend and to be spent for His glory. It means that we're willing to obey God even when it goes against all natural human wisdom. It means that we're willing to obey even if that means hardship ahead. It means that we're willing to suffer indignity and reproach and reprisal, mistreatment for the name of the Lord Jesus and for His sake without anger and bitterness and retribution in the path that our Lord set before us. Whether that mistreatment comes at home or that injustice is faced in the workplace or in the broader society, Christians deny themselves and take up their cross and follow their Lord. They're willing to give up their own comfort and their ease for doing God's will. There are a thousand different ways. This is one of the challenges, honestly, of this sermon. I'm going to give you the challenge right up front. It is that there are a thousand different, there are more than that, there are innumerable applications, expressions in a Christian's experience of what it means to deny himself and take up his cross as a follower of the Lord Jesus, to walk in the way in which his Savior walked. I'm trying my best to sort of hit a number of the aspects of it so you can begin to think about it, to take something away from with, with you from the sermon, that it wouldn't be simply hearing so many words. So, what does it mean? Maybe most fundamentally, um, it means a denial of your old natural self. Uh, this is what Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. That word deny means to disavow, to disown, disown yourself. <laughs> the word is illustrated when Peter disowns his Lord, actually. Um, and thankfully, he comes to repentance about this. But this is what Jesus is saying. If you want to follow me, you have to disown and deny yourself. Your natural self. In other words, you have to say it like this. To be a Christian, you, you in some deep, real sense have to die and be reborn. You can't really say it other than that. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you die. 
In some deep sense, a Christian is only a Christian who dies and is reborn spiritually. It means that you lay down your own commitment to self-determination and you surrender completely to God. It means that you give up any pretense of self-righteousness and cast yourself wholly on the Lord Jesus Christ. You deny yourself. This means that your old self, with all of your natural desires and inclinations and, and, uh, and, and, and plans and, and will, that, 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 that you once and for all disavow that old self. That is dead to you. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 says that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. That's dead to me. I'm, I'm a new person now. I've, I've died. I'm, I'm born again. Uh, and I'm committed to following my Lord no matter what because I believe that He's worth it and there's nowhere else I can go for eternal life. It's, it's, it's that. So to put it to you, have you died to, to sin, to self, to self-sufficiency, to self-righteousness and your own sense of inherent morality? Have you, have you, have you seen that for what it is and, and abandoned that? Have you broken with sin and self so decisively that it can only be described as death and rebirth. If you would come after me, Jesus says, you have to die. Maybe somebody here would say, well, I think I have. I think I am born again. I think that I have died to the old natural me, and I have become a new me in Jesus. But I tell you the honest truth, Pastor, I don't feel that the old self is very dead sometimes. Maybe that's you. Maybe that, that old self still feels very much alive at times. And I will tell you this, that the Bible has a word for you, literally a single word, <laughs> but a word for you in Romans chapter 6 when Paul teaches us that if we are, if we really are united to Christ, that we are dead, dead to the old life and alive in union with the Savior who died and was raised. We are united with Him, but then he says this, so you should consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. He says it's a fact, but then he gives you an imperative, a command. What's the command? He says, consider it to be so. Believe it to be so. Reckon on it to be so. Think about it and act 
on the faith that it is so. In other words, if you, if you feel like sometimes you believe in your, in your life that, that there has been a sort of, of a death and a rebirth, that you are born again, that you are a believer committed to Christ, that you believe that He's worth it to follow Him no matter what, but sometimes you, your sin feels, still feels so alive in you. You're going to just have to believe that Christ, that in Christ you have died and you are now made alive. You're going to have to bank on that work that only God can do, that only Christ can do, and call out to Him and ask Him to grant that it would be more true in your experience to think and believe and act on it until the reality of your death to sin becomes more and more your actual experience until you really consider that the sufferings of this world are not worth comparing with the glories of Christ, that you consider that suffering with Christ is greater riches than the fleeting pleasures of sin. You believe that. You're just going to have to believe it and, and, and act on your faith. And the Lord will, because He's the author of that faith, He will not abandon it, but He will breathe life on it and He'll grow it. And you will progress in your life of death. And in so doing, well, now I'm getting ahead of myself. You will find life. Okay. So Jesus says, if you're going to be my follower, you must deny yourself and die. But then he elaborates on that in verses 25 to 28. This is our text now for the morning. Verse 25, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? For his life. What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the coming, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I want you to see that what Jesus does here now, so he's told them, hey, if you guys are going to follow me, if you're going to come after me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And like any of us, they're, I'm sure, overwhelmed. And so he's going to give them three motivations, three encouragements to die to self. And you see that in the words in the text, F-O-R. So the word is used three times, and the sermon simply follows the contours of the text. Three reasons or motivations or encouragements for us to, and the disciples in those days, to deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow me. You see the word for at the beginning of verse 25, the word for at the beginning of verse 26, and again in the beginning of verse 27. Each of those will be 
the main points, okay? All right, number one, how would Jesus encourage us today to deny yourself and take up your cross, to suffer with him, to die to the flesh, What would be the encouragement in that? Number one, he says you should do this because losing your life is actually the way to find life. Losing your life is actually the way to find life. Verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life, whoever loses his life for my sake, he says, will find it. Let me ask you this. How do you become a Christian? And there are a lot of ways that you could give the There's a lot of ways you could state the answer. I should say it that way. How do you become a Christian? I want to state it this morning in keeping with this text. And I think you could say it just, just exactly this clearly. You become a Christian by dying. You only become a Christian by dying. And let me elaborate on that because that answer surprises a lot of people. But the truth is you become a Christian by dying to self, by dying to self-sufficiency, by dying to your own sense of your morality and your self-righteousness, because all who attempt to merit favor with God through keeping the law are under a what? Why? Because you're cursed if you don't continue to do everything in the law. So, whoever relates to God in that way is under a curse, the curse of death. But whoever will confess his sin and die to his self-attainment, to his own esteem of his morality, whoever will die to that, that person can live. And the best illustration of all of this in the Bible is in Romans chapter 7. You don't have to turn there. Let me just summarize for you the Paul's illustration in Romans chapter 7. It's the illustration of marriage. Many of you have been married. You stood in front of the preacher and in front of all your family and friends with your knees knocking and trying not to faint and you raised your right hand. No, you put your hand on the other hand or whatever you did. You swapped the rings and you said, I promise to be faithful to you until death do us part, if you did it the traditional way. Or maybe you said, until death parts us. All right? And now you are in a bond. You're in a marriage bond. And you have a lot of obligations because of that, right? Amen. And a lot of blessings because of that. Amen, amen. Right, that's right. That's the double amen. You have a lot of obligations and a lot of blessings. You are under the power of that marriage. You're not free to have another husband or wife to leave that relationship. You are in a covenant together, sealed before God, sworn with an oath. Well... In Romans chapter 7, Paul says that you are in a kind of a marriage covenant, a kind of a covenant, a kind of a relationship, um, and your standing, your relationship with God works this way, that 
if you and this is this is the this is the predominant message of the law okay if you obey you will what you'll you'll live you'll be blessed if you disobey you will surely die you can hear in that the echoes of the the arrangement that god had with adam and eve with all of us representative humanity in the garden of eden you hear in that the 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 the, the emphasis of of the law um Obedience brings blessing and life. Disobedience and sin brings death. And the only way to get extricated, so, so that would mean this. So if in any covenant there are, there are blessings for, um, for keeping covenant and there are curses for uh, breaking covenant, in this place, um, all of us are under a curse. The curse of sin and death and hell and punishment for our sins because we've all sinned against God. We've all broken God's law. Just being born in Adam as human beings, we are born sinful, enemies of God, not wanting to do His will, but fighting against God. And so we have brought a curse upon ourselves. Now, I want to ask you, what is the only way to get extricated from that covenant? Well, let me ask you this. What is the only way for your marriage to be dissolved? All right, we might talk about some minor exceptions, but I mean, in, in essence, what is it? What is the only thing that really dissolves your marriage covenant? When you stood, you said, till what? Till death parts us. Till death do us part. And the only way to be dissolved from our relationship with God by which obedience brings life and disobedience brings curse. The only way to be out of that covenant and into a new marriage, so to speak, into a new covenant, is through death. Death is the only thing that can dissolve that relationship. And that's why Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you want to be uh, in this new covenant, you have to die. You have to die to your old self. It's like your old natural you, the, the you in Adam, the you that's just by nature, the way that you are and the way that you were born and the way that you want to live and just kind of who you are, that you die to all of that. You renounce all that. You turn your back on all of your sin and yourself and you have to die and only then can you be married to another to Christ who is now the head of a new covenant. And in that new covenant, you have all of the blessings that come by being in that marriage, in that new marriage, in that new covenant. Everything that your spouse has is now yours. That's what happened when you became husband and wife here on earth, right? You, you join together and I, I bestow upon you. Sometimes we say in the vows, I bestow upon you all my worldly goods. And so everything that Christ has in the new covenant is yours. So here's what it's like. It's like a poor, dirty harlot who is yet loved by the king of kings. And he comes down to her and he makes her his own and he marries her. And she has a new name and a new home and new robes and a new standing. And she is now 
no longer a harlot, but the queen of the land. Why? Because she is united to the king. That's what we have in Christ. We have all of the righteousness and the goodness and the holiness and the purity of Jesus Christ that belongs to us by union with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But you will never enter a new covenant until you die to your old self. And that's why I say Christianity is about death. Death is the only thing that breaks that covenant. The Christian life is, is a cross life. It's, it's kind of an upside-down life in a way. Um, Jesus says it here, right? Look at the verse. He says, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, if you lay down your life for me, then that's when you find life. <laughs> It's like death is life and life is death. The first is last. The humble are glad. The proud are humiliated. The hungry and thirsty are filled. The meek inherit the entire earth. To give is better than to receive. Everything seems upside down in this kingdom. And the truth is that the kingdom of Christ is the only kingdom that's right side up. We live constantly in a world that's upside down. We get so used to it that everything does seem right side up. So that when you come to Christ... It seems like your whole life and your whole world has been turned upside down to everybody who sees you. What are you thinking? And sometimes that brings some suffering. The world lives to get. The world lives to hold on to. The world lives to be safe. The world lives to do what's comfortable. The world lives to be autonomous, my own man or woman, but Jesus says, listen, that's nothing but mere existence. That's not life. If you want to live, you must die. I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. The cross life, the Christ life, the life that your old self is gone and your new self is united to Christ in faith and love and hope. That's the new life that is real life, Jesus says. It just seems so strange to me. I have to die. I have to lay down. I have to give up. I have to stop talking about how I'm a pretty good person. Yes, you have to die. You would follow me. There is a kind of life that the world right now cannot even know in their mere existence, a life that comes through self-denial where Christ Himself lives and moves and speaks through His people in their new life and they say to themselves, so this is what it's like to be alive. <laughs> I never knew. It is the one who would lose his life for Christ who would know life. He counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and being united to Him in the power of His resurrection and sharing in His suffering. Because if I can just be united to Christ, that's 
life, even if it's suffering on the outside, it's life on the inside. Paul says this in his letters to his, the churches. He says, we're dying on the outside, but inside we're being renewed day by day. We're just learning, we're entering more and more into life, even while we're being persecuted and hounded and suffering and giving up and leaving home and laying down our lives. He said, I don't want you to feel bad for us. We're really living out here. Jesus says, blessed is the man who risks. Blessed is the man who gives, who sacrifices. Blessed is the man who gets used up for my sake, who lays down his life. Because this was the path of the Savior. And make no mistake, Christ's sacrifice was not marked by foolishness, but by faith, who he endured the cross for the what? Joy that was set before him. You think that Jesus is sorry that he laid down his life? (laughs) Oh, I guarantee you he's not. Is he sorry that he suffered, that he wasted his life? Oh, by no means. The only people who wake up and realize they've wasted their lives are those who come to the end of it apart from Jesus Christ. Sin holds out to you. I know it does. It holds out to you its sweetest fruits and says, hey, life is short. Indulge yourself. But consider him who endured and consider that he endured for the joy that was set before him. And so for the sake of joy, brothers, die. Sisters, deny yourselves for joy. Whoever would save his life, he says, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus encourages us with that. He says, listen, lay down your life because losing your life is actually the way to find life. And secondly, he says, lay down your life, take up your cross, because gaining the whole world is all for nothing if you lose life. Verse 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? but forfeits his own soul, or what will a man give in return for his soul? Let's just say that you manage to go through life and attain pretty much everything that you set out to attain in life. Can you picture that? (laughs) Probably not, but I'll try. You just got everything that your heart desired. You would be nothing more than the farmer in the parable that Jesus told whose fields prospered abundantly, so much so that he said, I'm going to have to tear down my barns to build bigger barns because I can't even hold all my blessings. And he says, I'm just going to, uh, I've done so well, I'm just going to, I'm going to retire early. I'm going to take my ease. I'm going to store up my stuff. I'm going to live off my wealth. And I'm just going to enjoy life. And the Lord comes to him in that moment and says, you fool, tonight you will die. And then, what? And that's a good question for all of us. Then what? If you manage to attain everything in life that you could have wanted in an earthly sense, and then you came to the end of your life, what? then what? 
In that moment, what would you give to just get a year of your life back? When it's time to die, how much do you think the richest person in the world would pay just to get another year of his life back? What's a life worth? You know, some of us can get so busy trying to gain the world that real life is slipping right through our fingers. I remember this poem my dad used to have. He put it almost everywhere. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Are you living for Christ? Because nothing else matters. So many people are going to end their lives with lots of stuff only to find themselves poor and miserable and empty. They've wasted their lives, slept them away spiritually, and they only now wish that they could go back and really live, risk, give, serve their Lord Because in the end, I'll tell you, when we stand before him, it's all going to come clear that that's the only thing that ever mattered. (laughs) And then, of course, there's not just one way to, quote, unquote, serve the Lord. I have to sell everything and go be a missionary. Maybe that is what God wants you to do. But he is calling you to deny yourself wherever you are, whatever he's put you in, whatever he's ordained for you in his providence. He calls on you to deny yourself and to know what real life is. Because if you spend all your life on all this other stuff, 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 and you get to the end of your life, you're going to be so miserable that you did not spend your life for the glory of his name. And in the final judgment day before God, what good will your possessions and your experiences and your attainments be when you stand there on the precipice between heaven and hell? All of the things of life will not matter. No one will be able to give an exchange for his soul. Nobody in that moment would say, hey, I'd give everything I owned on earth. But the Psalms say, no man can ransom another or give God the price for his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should go on forever and never see the pit. Jesus says you can gain the whole world, but you cannot buy your soul. What would you give? What could a man give in exchange for his soul? Your life, your life in Christ. That's the most precious thing you have. The Christ life that comes only by death. That's what you're made to live for. Only one life was a worthy ransom for your life. And that was the Savior's, that life that was valuable enough. And if you would be saved, you must be like the man who sells everything that he has in order to buy one piece of land because he believes that in that field there's a treasure that's worth more than everything else that he's abandoned. The rich young ruler, remember the story? Jesus came to him, he said, what do I need to do to follow you? And ultimately Jesus told him, Sell everything you have, then you can follow me. Do you think Jesus was being, uh, you think he was speaking 
hyperbolically, is that the right word? Was he, uh, did the man really need to sell everything in order to follow Jesus? Or maybe to say it another way. Um, would God literally make you give away every bit of your wealth in order to become a Christian? And I guess I would answer it like this, the best I can, that if you can't imagine doing that, then the answer is probably yes. <laughs> because the idea is not that we have to be poor and lonely and miserable, but that we have to believe that Jesus Christ is worth more than anything else. That's the heart of a Christian. He believes in Christ. He has such love and commitment and, and, and faith that Jesus is worth it, that he is willing to leave all else behind. Jesus says, listen, deny yourself and take up your cross. And he gives a third reason, a third motivation, a third encouragement about this in verse 27. He says, Deny yourself because Christ will repay in glory those who have laid down their lives for His sake. He will repay in glory those who have laid down their lives for His sake. Notice verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come again. He's going to come, excuse me, with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Jesus says in another place, if anybody, anybody who's a follower of me, who's a Christian, who's, who's committed to me, if he left, if he had to uh, um, be disowned by his family when he followed me, he's going to get more family. <laughs> he's going to get a family of God over the face of the earth that is far greater and far deeper than any flesh and blood relationship. He says, anyone who has left houses or possessions for my sake in the gospel will receive a hundredfold. And he tells the timing of when they will be repaid. He says they will receive a hundredfold both in this life. And by the way, that doesn't mean they're, they're just going to have health and wealth and no more problems in life because Mark says they're going to receive a hundredfold in this life along with persecutions. So it's, it's still a life of, of, of self-denial and suffering, right? But they're going to receive, they're going to be repaid in this life with returns that cannot be lost. And they will also be repaid, he says, in the life to come, in the age to come. This is not an empty promise. This is not a vain hope. We shouldn't think that all our suffering for Christ is just grin and bear it kind of suffering that's never going to have any kind of return. He says it will bear return. It'll be repaid. The man who leaves his family will have a greater family. The woman who leaves her home, her country, her culture for the sake of the gospel will be more at home doing what God wants her to do than she would be anywhere else on the face of the globe. She will say to herself, this world is not my home. I am waiting for the city whose builder and maker is God. And the couple who gives their wealth for the kingdom of Christ, who sacrifices for the sake of the gospel, finds that it all comes back to them and more. 
and they are inheritors of the new heavens and the new earth. And finally, Jesus encourages them in verse 28, the very last verse, where He says, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And that's a bit of a puzzling statement. And this afternoon, we're going to sort of delve deeper into just that one verse. So if you want to know what in the world does that mean, just stay for that. Or at least what I think it means. But suffice it to say, for now, that Jesus is teaching them that we don't merely wait for eternity to see the reward of living and dying for Christ. Even now, those who lay down their lives, those who deny themselves, those who die to sin, those who fight their temptations, those who struggle against injustice and oppression to respond the way the Lord wants them to, those who give away their possessions, to, who make sacrifices for the Christ and for His kingdom, those who, who die to self, take up their cross, those who follow Him will find that even in this life, they are repaid abundantly for the Lord in His glory will repay each person for what He has done. So deny yourself and you will be more satisfied than if you lived for your own ease. Take up your cross and you will know the joy that is set before you, the joy of the cross life, the Christ life. Follow the Savior, walk in His steps, and you will find reward both in this life and in the age to come. Amen. Father, grant us not only a mental comprehension of this text, and these sayings of our Savior, but Lord, please grant to us a deepening um, acceptance and apprehension of them spiritually. Lord, please show us right now, please show all your people who are gathered together in prayer, show us what it should look like for us to deny ourselves and take up our cross. Show your people while they wait on you in this time of prayer. Lord, give us grace to think about our home life and our work life and our life in the community and our work and our leisure and our Just all of the things that we do, Lord, even, even every detail of our lives that we may think about what it means to live in the way that Christ commanded us to live. Lord, grant us faith to be so committed to Christ that we would suffer with joy and find the real meaning of life, we pray. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.